0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would please turn to Genesis 15. Uh, We're continuing to work chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis. Sermon title is Our Story Begins. Big idea there that the the book of Genesis and the whole redemptive narrative we find in the scriptures is not some disconnected set of moral stories about someone else uh, in some other time. This is our story if we are those who belong to Jesus by faith. The Bible says in the book of Galatians that we, those who are of faith, are the children of Abraham. And so we have a, a long heritage and a lineage that runs all the way back to creation. This is God's story, and if we're on his team, then it's our story. And it does change to some degree the way you interact with the Old Testament, and I would say even the New Testament, when you see it as a part of your history, okay? So uh, we're going to read all of Genesis 15, uh, verses 1 through 21, and then we'll unpack it together, okay? Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, Genesis 14, Lot is taken captive. Abraham saddles up, uh, takes 300 guys and goes and defeats four kings, brings Lot back. Uh, Melchizedek shows up. That's a pretty big deal. And then at the end, the king of Sodom tries to give Abram all of the spoils of war that he brought back, which would seem like the right thing to do. And Abram denied that and said, "I, I don't want to take all of these spoils. My concern being that you would then say, I made Abram rich. Okay, and I just wanted to give you that quick synopsis because, you know, at some point in church history, chapters and verses were put in here, but this was written as one continuous story, and so this will make more sense. Um, These, these, particularly these first few verses, will make more sense knowing what we just came out of. Okay, so uh, Genesis fifteen, verse one: After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, "Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you." your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Praise God for his word. If we can come back to verse one, uh, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And part of why I wanted to make sure we knew what we were coming out of in the last chapter is it makes a lot of sense after Abram goes with a small band of soldiers and and takes out the armies of four kings, uh, pagan kings that he would possibly be in a place of fearing retribution. Uh, it was pretty clear that God had to intervene in order for his small force to take on their force. And so it, it makes a lot of sense for God to meet Abram in this place. Abram could be thinking now after the adrenaline has rushed off or uh, burned off, right? Uh, now what? Because <laughs> right? now there's four kings with an attitude that have a problem with him. And so God in his great mercy is saying, Abram, don't fear it. I am, I am a shield to you. That's who he didn't say, I'll give you a shield. that will work. He didn't say, I'll build a big shield around you and you'll be okay. He said, I am a shield to you. You want to talk about a promise you can take to the bank, something that'll help you put your head on your pillow and go to sleep. That's a good one right there, but it doesn't stop. He says, also your reward shall be very great. And some of your translations, it says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And so Built into this language is the idea that God is saying, I am your shield, and also I am your exceeding great reward. And this is beautifully juxtaposed against the potential Abram had of taking all of that wealth and goods from this battle and him not wanting that because he had great concern for the glory of God. He didn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say, I've made Abram rich because. He wanted everyone to know that whatever prosperity or good things he had in his life was from the Lord. And that's uh, part of why it, it's even more beautiful for us to see God bring this idea to him and, and remind him. Because it's, 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 you could think, okay, maybe Abram denies all that stuff from the king of Sodom, but God's going to give him even more different and better stuff, and that would be the reward. But it's, it's even greater than that. It's even greater than if God said, Hey, Abram, as a result of your concern for my glory and your, your willingness to refuse that from the king of Sodom, I'm going to give you ten times what he would have gave you. Would that be cool? Hello? Yes, it would be, right? Or a hundred times. Any, any multiplier of, of more of those kind of goods, gold and, and livestock and all the things, right? Yes, that would have been amazing. But what God promises is, and I'm using this word on purpose, infinitely better than any other thing God could have promised him, any amount of treasure. He said, I am your reward. And I think that is a great opportunity for all of us to ask a really good question of ourselves. When we think about the kind of hierarchy of desires in our own hearts, when we think about what is, what is, what is the thing I hope for most? I wish for most. What is the thing that if I was going to be able to say to God, this this is the reward I would like from you, what what would it be? And you know, this is a you and Jesus thing. This is a you getting honest before the Lord thing, but I really think it's right for us to examine ourselves in that. And and the best answer in light of all that scripture teaches is that our highest desire and the greatest reward we could possibly conceive of is God himself, that we get him, that we get to be connected to him, that we get to be in relationship with him, that we are not cast off as a result of our sin as we so rightly deserve. And so this is the the fact that God comes and says, I am your shield and your reward is going to be exceedingly great. And inferred in this is the idea that God is that reward. I think is, is a, it's a great uh, reflection point for us, a good question to ask ourselves. Do we see God as a great reward? And do we, kind of the order of our, our loves, our affections, where, where does that idea rank for us? It should be the top. Let's look at verse 2. We'll take verse 2 and 3 together. together. Uh, Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. We find out later, later in Genesis that Eleazar is a, a trusted, uh, probably right-hand man to Abraham, and, and so his concern is I, I don't have any physical offspring, and so the only person I could leave whatever it is you bless me with to is not a son of my own, but this kind of head servant of mine. And so Um, I think it's also, it's just for us to think about how this (laughs) comes down, right? The Lord in his great mercy sees Abram where he's at, sees probably there's some anxiety around, okay, now is there going to be retribution from these kings and all of that? The Lord comes and gives him this, this incredible promise, talking about being a shield, but also a reward. And then we see Abram, the the guy that left Ur of the Chaldeans and has sojourned just upon the word of the Lord, right? This guy that we've been kind of watching his arc of growth and in, in faith and in trusting God. His response is, well, "I don't, I don't know if that's that good. What you're promising me, I don't know if it's that great because I have this problem. This problem is that I don't have an heir, and probably Abram's." maybe not so bold as to say, and, and you told me I would. Okay, And we're we're right now 10 years out. I know it doesn't read like that. <laughs> we're 10 years out from Genesis 12, the original promise that through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's been 10 years since God gave Abram this idea that you're going to have descendants that, that through them all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so uh, once you take that into account, Abram He seems a little pushy here with the Lord, but when you take all that into account, it's like, oh, this is probably fair (laughs) inquiry on Abram's part. Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. I just want to point out that this could look like Abram doubting. This could look like Abram being ungrateful and I none of us can guarantee that none of a temptation to any of that was not creeping up into the mind and heart of Abram. But where we're at in this narrative, I think it's kind of staring at us as this idea, and I hope it's helpful. There is a difference. To some degree this could look like doubt. Okay, God, you just gave me that great promise, but you gave me another promise and, and like what's required for that promise I don't see, right? That's kind of where he's at. But there's a difference between a doubt that denies God's promise and a doubt that desires God's promise. There's, there's, <clears throat> and, and as we're going as we keep working, working through this, this idea is gonna be clear. I think sometimes our perception of am I walking in faith or do I trust the Lord is a little too narrow. Now, best case scenario for me, if I could just turn off every shred of doubt or, or kind of foolish inquiry towards the Lord that, that, you know, oftentimes I'm just getting above my pay grade anyways and asking questions I probably couldn't handle the answers to. But if I could just remove all of that, that would be, that would be best case scenario. But is does the fact that there does still remain in me the, the potential for moments of doubt or hard questions about things that I don't quite understand how what I see is lining up with what God has said, does that mean I'm not in faith? Does that mean I'm not believing? My point is, well, just, keep, just hold that. We'll come back to it. But I, I want to submit this to you. There is a difference between doubt that denies God's promise. It's just a posture of, no, I don't trust you. No, I don't think you're going to do what you have said you're going to do. That's, that's, that's a no-no. But over here, there's, there's a doubt that desires God's promise. It's more like, Lord, I, I do trust you, but I, don't, I just can't understand, or I don't quite see yet. But I want to trust you fully, right? There's a difference between denying his promises and desiring his promises, and being stuck in the hard reality of being in a broken world, in an imperfect frame, trying to navigate this thing. I'm trying to speak some words of grace to some of you that beat yourself up too hard sometimes. Will you receive that? I hope so, because it'll help some of you. Because some of you are flagellating yourselves over stuff that you, you just haven't you just haven't broadened it out far enough to realize God's not mad at you that you're still a human, <laughs> okay? Woo, that's good news, isn't it? <clears throat> now, I am not saying you run around here and have a sassy attitude with the Lord. You ought to Tap that immediately, okay? Get that fixed and 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 repent. But uh, there is there is kind of this this middle space, and I think the Lord's great mercy towards Abraham, because you know, <clears throat> after verses two and three, if if you see this as a, a little bit of snark or doubt coming from Abram to the Lord, we we see how the Lord deals with him. It, it's not lightning bolts. And, you know, it just fries him on the spot, which is, I think, what some people conceptualize God to be waiting to do anxiously. It's, it's not the case. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. And, and the other thing throughout this sermon, and as we're moving through Genesis, something I want you to notice is the, the kind of progressive nature of God's revealed promise to Abraham. Okay? Because back in Genesis 12, there wasn't, he didn't specifically say, right? There was, there was room by Genesis 15 for Abram to think, okay, well, maybe God's considering Eliezer like a spiritual son to me, and that's how this is gonna work. Because he wasn't super specific in Genesis 12 exactly how it was gonna happen. But God right here is removing this, this piece, this variable from the mix of Abram's mind, and saying, no, no, no it's not going to be Eleazar. It's going to be someone that comes forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Because if I was Abram, I would have been tempted to lean into the Eleazar option probably because I'm old, okay? And my wife's old. So here's here's the sinful part of me. I'm I'm looking. I want to be on God's side. I want to believe his promises, but I'm also looking at I'm past baby-making age, right, if I'm Abram. So it's like, all right, well, how could God still be true? Well, maybe, maybe this is more of a spiritual thing that he's talking about. Well, the reality is God very intentionally waited until Abram and Sarah were too old for anybody to possibly think this happened naturally to grant the miracle, and that was all on purpose. And I know that some of you would much rather, whatever's going on in your life, it's like, Lord, okay, I get it, fine, it's, it's you doing it, just do it, I don't want to wait any longer. Well, I'm sorry, it's not up to you, okay? Uh, He knows when that point will be, when it won't be that uh, there'll be some other explanation for how you were delivered, how you were set free, how you were blessed, how you were changed. Uh, God is about his glory, and it's not because he's an egomaniac, it's because we need, I'm so glad he's about his glory because it flows out of his love for us. I, I need God to be about his glory. I need God to put in front of my eyes all the time why he is so glorious and so worthy of my worship and the only one worthy of my worship because I am so tempted constantly with the little triflings of this life and to give my worship to someone or something else. I'm, I'm sure I'm the only one in here tempted in that way, but I'm just trying to share what, what it's like to be me, Okay. God's glory is for our good. It is a part of his love for us. It's, it's not that he <clears throat> just needs attention, okay? That's not what it's about. All right, so let's look at uh, verses four and five. Behold, the word of the Lord, this man will not be your heir. Uh, one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens, count the stars. If you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Uh, so I, I told you that we're, we're 10 years out from the Genesis 12 promise. So Abram having some questions at this point is maybe not as ridiculous as we might think. But keep this in mind too, friends. So Genesis 12 is the original. We're at Genesis 15. <clears throat> we're still 15 years out from the point that Isaac is born. It's a total of 25 years from the first time God brings this promise to Abram. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That's, we got 25 years from there to the birth of Isaac. <clears throat> and, and I just want to say this about that. I have to get into the next verse. I've I got to show you something. So that happens. So, you, so and he takes them outside, look at the stars, if you can count them. What's the point of that? you can't, okay, that was was the, this, you know, this God joke, kind of, like, you know, go ahead, try to count them, oh, you can't, that's how many descendants you're going to have, okay, Um, I, you know, I like to imagine the Lord having a sense of humor, I think there's enough evidence from scripture that we're going to laugh in heaven uh, in eternity with him, so, but then, so what happens after God says this, verse six, then he believed in the Lord, then he believed in the Lord. Now let's clear this up. The language would could leave somebody unaware of what had happened thus far, thinking that this is like the moment when Abram believed God exists. Okay, that's not what this is saying. Okay, Abram's already left Ur of the Chaldeans upon the word of the Lord. They've had some conversations. They've had some interactions. Abram is—it's not this point that he believes God exists. Okay. It's this moment, this is, this is a, a major transition in the life of Abram, where now, he, it's, it's not that I believe God exists, it, it's implying a full now, trust and faith and surrender to the Lord. That's what, be- and Abram believed in the Lord. He put his faith in the Lord, fully. And <clears throat> how that relates to the fact that this, this promise is, this discussion with the Lord is 10 years after the original and still 15 years from the promise being fulfilled. Here, here's the idea. I, I, had to, I had to kind of show you the result, which is Abram believing in God, trusting God fully. But one thing I want to submit to you is that we, we will not trust God's timing until we trust His character. And it's really interesting how this plays out. We don't see a cry from Abram in the beginning of Genesis 15 saying, Lord, I'm terrified of retribution from these four kings. We don't see any, and I'm not saying he didn't, maybe it just isn't recorded, but, but that's, it, it wasn't a big enough facet that it got recorded. God came to Abram, you know, I, I can imagine Abram in his tent just, just freaked out, not knowing what to do, mulling over all the possible ways these kings could come and, and jack him up. And, and, and mess up everything that the Lord had already done and and you know he's got flocks and a and a clan now, a little tribe we got going on here. just wipe them all out you can you can imagine him sitting there um, I'm sure none of you ever do this, but just imagining all the bad things that could happen you've probably read about people doing that that's the thing people really do for those of you who haven't haven't even heard about it maybe uh, and 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 what, what happens? The Lord comes in. There's The mercy of God. The, the, are you hearing this? God doesn't show up and say, Abram, I just delivered you from four kings. What are you worried about? He didn't come with the, the holy backhand from heaven upon Abram's forehead. No, oh, man, he came in, came in tenderness. And this is, you know, people, people often have this misunderstanding about God. It's like, you know, Old Testament God was angry. I like, I like New Testament. I like Jesus. You know, He pets lambs and plays with kids and stuff. Like, I like him, but man, Old Testament God is angry and mean. Well, I, just don't, I don't know what you read. Like God is jealous for his glory. God will lay down anybody that is intent on hurting his people or doing evil continually. He will do that for sure. But when it comes to those whom he loves and those who love him, there's an incredible amount of tenderness and patience. Again, I hope that's good news for you. I'm not trying to give you license to act a fool because God's patient, but man. (laughs) Fear in a kind of terrified way. We should have a a fear that is a respect towards the Lord, but fearing Him in this kind of dreadful way is not the way we've been primarily invited to relate to Him. But what does it mean that we won't trust God's timing until we trust His character? Because... We're always going to have what we think is a better idea on the timing. Is that not true about us? Like, come on, Lord. You know, Um, but when you become convinced of his character, when you become convinced of his commitment to your good, when you become convinced of not only his commitment to your good, but his inherent goodness and holiness, when you become convinced of not only his goodness, but also his power to do something about his goodness, his power to keep his promises, when you see he's not only good, but also mighty, and all of that, you get to the point where you really believe in the Lord as he is, you can trust his timing. You can trust that the reason this hasn't happened yet is not because his intentions toward me are bad and he's trying to hurt me. It takes that out of the equation. You can then believe the reason this thing hasn't changed or happened or I haven't seemed like I've been delivered yet is not because he's impotent and without the power to do the thing that needs to be done. It isn't that. That's off the buffet of options. And so what, what I'm left with then is a good and powerful God who knows things I don't know. And I'm allowed then to rest in and trust his timing because I trust his character. Abram trusted and believed in the Lord. It didn't say Abram got okay with the timing of the promise. Abram believed in the Lord. Got a fuller view of his great might and his great mercy altogether. Now, verse 6 is quite possibly the most important verse in the Old Testament. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying quite possibly it is. This is a big deal. Uh, for those that uh, have leveled the accusation that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a New Testament invention, uh, that it's, it's something made up by the apostles, and uh, it doesn't connect to or jive with the Hebrew scriptures... Uh, Man, I just don't understand how you could read Genesis 15, and particularly Genesis 15, 6, and not see the dots connect. Uh, This is precious and good and holy and eternal, and I'm real thankful for it because Abram believed in the Lord, trusted in Him, the fullness of His good character, and what did God do in response? He reckoned it to him as... Righteousness. This is pivotal. This is gospel showing up very early in Genesis 15, and as I've already showed you, this is not the first appearance of the truth of the gospel in Genesis. Uh, I'd say that's all the way back in Genesis 3, but in any case, <clears throat> there's. So, <laughs> oh man, this this chapter of this is the hardest time I ha- I've had in, in recent memory figuring out what not to say, okay? There's, oh my gosh, so many things, all right? But um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just focus in on, on this idea because there are so many things that could be said. I could see, I have, so maybe you've shared this. When I've really started to grapple with the totality of what the scriptures teach and really begin to realize early, on that, it is it is by faith that God calls His people righteous. It is it's it's belief, it's trust in Him. It's not by good works. And and so when when the <clears throat> the last bits of that that veil of legalism was being pulled back from the, my mind, and I, I was seeing the light of the gospel fully for the first time, this this question came along with it. And and for a long time, I didn't have a great answer to it, other than. God is God, and so he can do what he wants. But the question was this. Why is it? It almost seems arbitrary to some degree. Like, Abram believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Why? Why did God, as I said, to me it seemed somewhat arbitrary. And Maybe all of you are just a lot smarter than me, and it, it clicked much faster, but I, I wasn't sure. <clears throat> so we, when we've heard the gospel for so long, sometimes it's it's like, it's just like, oh, that's what it is. But we, we don't ask questions like, well, why is it like that? Why, could, could, it, could it not have been that God would have set this thing up where faith was a part of it, but also works were involved in what would determine our righteousness? Can you, can you conceive of that? I can conceive of that. I think most of us are tempted to believe it half the time, right? So it could, have, or it could have been all works-based, and that would have made more sense to the average human, right? Do good things, God will be good to you. Do bad things, God will do bad to you. That, that computes pretty easily based on our lived experience. Why is it that when he believed him, he reckoned it to him as righteousness? Why is, why is this what God determined was going to <clears throat> affect our relational status with him? right? Because to have, if you have a holy, perfect, righteous God, you need holy, perfect, righteous people. Because the Bible tells us later in Malachi that God is, is like a refining fire, right? A lot of people get hemmed up about like the judgment of God and all of that. It's like, it's unfair. I don't know. Well, here's the thing, man. <clears throat> God, God's holiness is akin to a refining fire. When you put a block of ore and mixed with a bunch of impurities and whatever into that refining fire, it's, it's going to do what it does. Okay. Impurities are going to burn off. You're going to be left with what's pure. Okay. And, and the fact that that God's very essence and nature, the perfection of his holiness, that it's imperfections and unholiness and wickedness and all of that, it can't it can't be in his presence because it will burn away that's just that's just the way the thing is okay so it's not even that god has to go through and decide i'm going to punish you for this and punish you for this he's he's so holy so good so mighty that imperfection and unholy things can't be in his presence that's the problem with sin coming into the picture okay that's that's why we sin separates us from god so why then? What, why is what, fi- what makes it now? Okay, okay I believe. Now, now I'm righteous. How? What? Why? If you, if you go back... <clears throat> and I don't know why it took me so long. Again, maybe you saw this sooner. I, I think the answer is, is simpler maybe than I thought it was. It really is because unbelief was the first sin. Unbelief was the chief sin. Unbelief was the problem the first problem that caused the separation. And to some degree, all of our sins springs out of some degree of unbelief. What do I mean? If you go to Genesis 2, verse 16, we see the command. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day you eat from it you will certainly die. Then we go to Genesis 3:3. 3, 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal. Did you guys hear what God said? Was everyone, I need you to key back in if you've drifted. Did you hear what God said? Let me summarize it. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you do, you will surely die. That's what God said about it. Everyone got that? Great. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said? Has God really said? I, I want to punch his mouth right now just for just for letting those words pass through those nasty lips i mean has god really said has god really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden the woman said to the serpent from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden god has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die and the serpent said to the woman you certainly will not die now i want to two piece him in the grill that's direct contradiction to what God said. You will certainly not die, for God knows on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a light to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She, gave also, she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves waist coverings. So, what am I saying? I'm saying, God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Clearly, what, what he meant there was not just the kind of more minimal temporal death of the flesh, but a much deeper and eternally important spiritual death. There was a transition that happened in them that out of their desire to be like God, knowing good and evil, and there's an inference there even of not just knowing, not being able to say that's good, that's bad, but being able to determine that's good, that's bad. You ought to know that about yourself. You have a temptation and a desire to want to be able to autonomously, in your power, determine what is good and evil. There is some part of our sinful nature, each one of us, that doesn't like the idea that someone gets to tell us what to do and not to do. I don't know if I believe that. Have you hung around a kid lately? (laughs) It's perhaps a bit more pronounced or just they don't hide it as well. Yeah, okay. You guys can do all those holy stares you want to. I know the truth about it. So... (laughs) Whatever you want to do is fine, okay? But the problem is, God said this, and they should have believed him. And regardless of how temptation came in, regardless of who lied, or how good they were at lying, or whatever it was, somebody else should have never been able to come along and say the opposite of what God said, and they would believe him over him. Unbelief and a lack of faith in God is what caused the problem to begin with. And so when, I, when that light bulb went off, it was like, oh, it makes perfect sense then. That the restoration of faith and belief and full trust in what God says is what restores relationship. I submit that to you. Okay? Let's look at verse 8. Do we do seven? Let's do seven too. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? This ties back to the same idea I was talking about earlier. This, this is hopefully going to be a help for some of you. Uh, earlier we were talking about the Lord comes with this great promise. I'm going to be a shield to you, right? Your reward is going to be great. Abram's like, yeah, well, what about, <laughs> right? Uh, and then, <clears throat> Then, he, then he's now. Now we have another promise. Now he's talking in verse seven. I am the Lord that brought you out of the earth of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abram's response Thank you, Lord. You're so good and merciful and mighty. I trust you. Was that his response? Lord, how, how will I know? <laughs> Translation uh, Any guarantees here? Because we're talking about some wild stuff there's our, there's inhabitants in this land. I, you know, there's problems. Okay. So how will I know this is going to happen? And it, you can imagine, you know, the Lord came, I'm a shield. Uh, your reward is great. Well, I don't have an heir. Okay. Well, it, it's going to be someone from your body. The Lord mercifully answers is gentle. And then he's like, and, and I'm going to give you this land to possess it. The Lord's just like, good things, good things, good things. And Abraham's like, well, I don't, I'm not totally sure. And, and here's the other thing I want to say is verse 8, he said, Oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? In case, in case you didn't like what I said earlier, you're like, No, well, you're either in faith or out of faith, and that's it, buddy. Okay, if that's your position, let me just remind you of this, okay? Verse 6 is, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So this wasn't. This wasn't a level of belief that God disregarded, God responded to this level of belief in Abram and did what? Reckoned it to him as righteousness. This level of belief is what God was looking for, for restored relationship between him and mankind. This is why Abram is called the father of our faith. Okay? And then what happened? Verse 8. After that, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Okay? This reminds me, of one of the most helpful verses in all of the New Testament. Listen to me, man. In Mark 9, there's a man who has a son that has been demonically tortured since he was just a little guy. And this guy gets to Jesus and says, Lord, if you can help him, please do. And Jesus says, if you can. Everything is possible to those who believe. And this man's response is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't say, that's impossible, pick one. Here's the reality. We can be in faith. We can trust in God's good character and still have hard questions and still have doubts that are trying to creep in. It is not all or nothing in that sense. And I want some of you to stop living in constant condemnation because you're still working out your faith with fear and trembling. Because the Bible kind of said that was going to happen. The Bible kind of made it really plain that you're not going to have this moment like Abram had where you believe him and it's reckoned to you as righteousness. And then you are always and forever from that point, free of any doubt or temptation to doubt. Again, I'm not trying to give you a license to throw attitude at God. You should not do that. I'm not giving you license to dwell on doubts and lean into doubts and, and entertain them in an unhealthy way. We should Take every thought captive that is contrary to the Word of God, but on the days that you're struggling to do that, just know God is not casting you away as a result of the fact that this is still a process, and we're reliant upon His continual mercy and grace for the entire thing. Hopefully that helps somebody. All right, it's helping me if it ain't helping anybody else, so hallelujah, I'll take it. Verse, let's look at verses 9 through 17. Things are starting to get weird. <clears throat> Lord, how will I know? God's answer. Well, let me, let me just tell you the promise in another way. No, go get me. <laughs> how am I going to know, Lord? Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. How are you guys doing if you're having a little prayer time with the Lord and you get this back? Lord, I'm trusting you about this thing. It's hard. How will I know? Lord, I need some reassurance here. Go get me a heifer. Get me a goat. Don't stop there. Give me some birds, too. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I'd do it, but, you know, it's going to take me a minute. <clears throat> probably shouldn't steal them. I'm going to have to find someone to sell me this stuff. Oh, I'd probably catch a pigeon out here somewhere. I don't even know where to go for a turtle dove. Thank God we're out of this. Uh, Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, where I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That's God giving Abram a forward look at the time of the people of Israel in Egypt. As for you, you should go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. Mm, mm, mm. Let me deal with this first, because I'm about to rip, rip, tear on this. Um, verse sixteen. Verse sixteen addresses what I think is a <clears throat> fair question. Uh, again, when I'm bringing questions to the Lord. I, best case scenario is my posture is my questions are coming from a place of believing him like verse six said so that i'm trusting his character so i'm not coming i'm i'm not into the throwing accusations at god business i don't don't think i don't think that's my place okay and i would suggest maybe you shouldn't either but uh there could be a question of you know well all right god's promising this land to abram but there's all these other people in it. How is that fair? Because it seems like God's picking favorites and then saying, okay, well, all these other tribes and peoples, you know, you move out. Sorry about your luck, right? It's like imminent domain type thing, um, Old Testament edition. Um, <clears throat> but it says in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Here's something you got to understand about the very confusing reality of the foreknowledge of God. God will, in his justice and fairness, even knowing that the Amorites and these other pagan cultures that were practicing child sacrifice, grotesque sexual, sexual perversions, all this type of stuff, worship of Molech and Baal, terrible demonic things, right? And that they were going to, they're teaching them to their children and they're proliferating these ideas and growing in wickedness. Even though God knew, because he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, that the Amorite and the rest of these were not going to stop. There was still time given for them. And, and to some degree, I think it's a witness to everybody else, to some degree, because there's also times where it, it's it's God's justice and mercy that he does take somebody out. I know some of you are going to really struggle with this idea, but if God and his great Mercy and His perfect foreknowledge knows that somebody is just going to continually do evil, and now only not not only hurt themselves more, heap upon themselves more judgment, but hurt more people in the process. Is it not merciful to stop that? It is. Maybe you don't like that idea, but again, we're coming back to verse six, and can I trust in God's character and that maybe He's aware of things I'm not, uh, because. <clears throat> Here's the flat out truth that I wish wasn't wasn't true. Some people will not relent. They will not repent and they will not turn from evil. They are determined in their hatred of God and in their their full open acceptance of all that is evil and dark. They will continue in that. Uh, And that is part of why God not only takes them out of the land but Uses the children of Israel eventually in the time of Joshua and the conquest to accomplish that. Okay, there is genuine evil in the world, friends. I know we don't like to think about it, but it's a real thing. Okay. All right. Now that that's hopefully out of the way, <clears throat> a lot more can be said about it. I have to kind of do that quick. The same Hebrew word for covenant can be used interchangeably, for, like for cutting. And so you may have heard the term cutting covenant. And that begins to explain what's going on here with the heifer and the goat and the turtle doves and the pigeons and all these animals getting cut in half. And so I just want to make sure the the stage is set for you. Maybe you didn't quite understand. I think it's also very interesting that Abram, we don't see God, God just says, bring me this stuff. And then Abram just does the rest. So Abram was aware of this custom of the time in the way that covenant was cut. And so what happened is, these animals were cut in half they were laid out in such a way that there was space for the people cutting the covenant to walk through the pieces okay so that's that's what is it's saying that abram set up here that's that's what abram had to chase the the birds away from that were trying to come down and eat the carcasses okay and so <clears throat> this it's it's set up in this way and it's also interesting too like just the continual lessons I don't know I don't know why, it's probably because we struggle with patience so much, why the Lord is, is just so into teaching us about patience. Like even to the degree that it's like, God says, go get me this stuff, but waits to show up long enough that Abram has to like guard the stuff and chase birds away and whatever. It's like, what are we waiting for here? But God knew what he was doing because it got dark and Abram is, is put to sleep. And here's what's really interesting about that. Okay. So the way this should have worked, typically would have worked, when a covenant was cut, there, there would most of the time be some recognition that there's a, a greater and a lesser in the transaction. Okay? There's somebody that is more powerful than the other. And one of two things would happen. Either both people would walk through the pieces, or sometimes just the lesser of the two in status would walk through the pieces. And what was being, what is being functionally said as you walk through these these animals cut in half this is a this is not a sanitized scene you understand this is bloody and it's nasty and it's on purpose because it's it's meant it's meant to communicate very dire circumstances because of the importance of covenant the idea was as I'm as I'm walking through these pieces and I'm repeating the terms of the covenant what I'm effectively saying is if I don't keep my word Let what happened to these animals happen to me. Now here's what's real interesting. Abram for sure should have walked through the pieces if things were happening as they normally would. But God puts Abram to sleep. God hits him with some holy melatonin, and this brother's napping. And what happens? This flaming torch and this smoking pot, this is is undoubtedly... A, a somewhat physical, but at least visible manifestation of the presence of God. Okay, now there is much debate about the symbolic significance of the torch and and the pot. We've got, you know, tie-ins to the the smoke and the fire and the leading of the 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 the, the cloud and the and the fire for the Israelites. There's there's you know, <clears throat> God God showing up in this way is not unique just to Genesis 15, but it's, it's not totally clear to me exactly what, why that was the form that he took, but that's kind of less important than the reality that God put Abram to sleep, and he passed through the pieces. This, this is why this chapter rocks me every time I think about it, because this is one of the first and clearest pictures of God's intention to save us through gospel covenant that he was the one that was going to pass through the pieces because Abram was not going to keep the covenant perfectly. Abram was not possibly able to keep the covenant perfectly. And so God takes Abram out of the mix, and he swears because he's not going to break his word. And it's real interesting that it's it's almost as if he takes Abram's place in walking through the pieces to say that if you don't keep the covenant, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. And friends, it did. A long time later, this same God in the form of the Trinitarian Son is beaten and shredded and crucified. Torn asunder because we couldn't keep our end of the covenant. And if 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 you can't come to a place of wanting to worship a God, willing to do all that because you can't, I don't know what else to say to you. That is beautiful and it's glorious. And it's 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 redemption in a way we never would have expected. No one would have thought the creator of the universe would, would, would come to this level. And do this. Why? Do you understand how replaceable we are? Do you understand that when we screwed it up, there could have been a different plan? Wipe the chalkboard and start again. That seems far better an option to me. If all he had to deal with was my foolishness as a result of continuing this thing. But he's got all you knuckleheads too and the rest of humanity throughout time. The evil we've done, the sin we've participated in, the way we've hurt each other and hurt his heart in the process. But that, what does it say about Jesus? He went to the cross because there was a joy set before him that compelled him. And that joy is a heavenly vision. It's us and him forever. And whatever it was going to cost in between, He was willing to pay it to have that, to have you. I don't know if I'm loved, friend. Please, think more. Please immerse yourself in in these ideas and understand. (laughs) The problem is not that you're not loved. It's that you can't even grasp the fullness of how loved you are. You You can't even get your head around it. None of us can. Man, that's good. All right, let's look at, what time is it? I don't have, I had to print my notes today because my iPad was on the fritz. Who's got the time? 11.48? Oh, you guys are good. We got lunch 20 feet away. All right. Again, let me just say this to be clear. There's a thousand more things I could say about that right there, but I'm going to move on out of mercy to you, okay? Verses 18 through 21, Okay. <clears throat> on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kazanite, and the Kadmonite and the Hittite, the Perizzite and the Raphaim and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Okay. So what's interesting here is <clears throat> I, you, if you've been paying really close attention, you may have thought, well, hold on, man. This covenant with the animals split in half and all of that. This that covenant was about land. It wasn't about salvation. Yes, he reckoned it to him as righteousness that he believed. So that's we see the gospel in that, but hold on. This covenant thing is this is about, this is specifically about him giving him this land. So what how does that why are you saying that ties to the gospel? Well, you astute Bible student, I'm glad you asked that question. First of all, let's establish this, okay? Because I don't want <clears throat> to. I don't want to forget to say this because there's a, there's a duality to this covenantal promise. All right? there, is a, a, there is a sense in which it is about the land. Okay? That's, that's a real thing that God did promise, but it's not just about the land. Okay? So let me say this first. Did, did God keep this promise? Let, you know, if, if, if the terms of this covenant aren't kept, then let me be torn asunder. <clears throat> like these animals. Well, he did. He did keep his word on this. So, if you go to Joshua chapter twenty-one, verse forty-three, here's what it says. Okay, why why Joshua? All right. So we got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we go to Joshua. That's where, right? They send the spies in. Uh, most people are scared. Caleb and Joshua are like, "Now nah, we can do it. Let's let's rock and roll." They go in. Everyone else has to stay. The younger generation gets to go, and they do what God said, and they beat the giants, and they tear down walls, and they conquest. Amen, right? So now we're coming to the after all of that happens. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they took possession of it and lived in it. What was the promise that God said? I'm going to give you this land, and you're going to do what with it? Possess it, okay? Amen. I heard one pretty confident whisper out there about what God said to do with the land. Possess it, okay? Yes, that's what they were supposed to do. And God made good on his promise. And the Lord gave them rest on every side in accordance with everything he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything came to pass. Okay, so, uh, spoiler alert, big surprise, God kept his promise. Okay, so, I'm not surprised, hopefully you are not either. Amen. He did Bring them into a land to possess it, and they did. All their enemies were, you know, they had this time. It didn't didn't stay that way in perpetuity, but God did do what he said, okay? But wait, there's more, all right? It's not just about that, the fulfillment of this promise at that level. The promised land was not just about the promised land, okay? What, What do I mean? Remember, I was telling you how this this there's a, kind of a progressive nature to the unveiling of this promise, and I have to assume that it's just God's wisdom in knowing what Abram was ready to hear and not hear, to some degree. But he he starts it in 12, right? I'm going to bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, right? Yes, and then we come to Genesis 15, and he picks up, and there's there's more. I'm going to be a shield to you; your reward will be very great. and and it's going to be one from your own body that I'm going to, and your descendants are going to go outside, look at the stars. Can you count them? Nope. That's how many, right? So the promise is progressing. It's now we got more details. All right. Reckons his belief as righteousness. And then you go to Genesis 22 and there's something else mixed into this thing. There's, there's a, the veil is pulled back a little bit further about what God is doing here in this covenantal promise with Abram. Genesis 22 verse 18 says, in your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That that word wasn't in Genesis 12 and it wasn't in Genesis 15, but it is in Genesis 22. And so there's a continual revealing by God of the details to Abram of how this is going to happen. Okay. Why does that matter? You're asking really good questions. Keep it up. Galatians 3 verse 16. Paul's unpacking what's going on in all of this. Okay. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed all right so he's referring to Genesis 22. Paul's explaining though. He does not say and to seeds because that is the the common kind of almost this is a loaded word but like kind of a zionist view of what is going on. That when he, he's talking about a seed he's talking about physical lineage, all right? But Paul's like Paul who is not against the Jews who spent a good portion of the book of Romans saying, "Look, if 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 I could switch places with them, I would be accursed if they could come to Christ. Paul loves his Jewish brethren, okay? So he's not against them. But here's what he says. Abram, uh, the, the the promise was spoken to Abram and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as one would in referring to many, but rather in referring to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What Paul is saying is the problem was to Abram, the promise was to Abram, who becomes Abraham, and to his seed. To Christ. So there's a, there's a sense in which as God is making this covenant promise to Abraham, he's also making it to Christ. God is not only swearing by himself when he passes through the pieces, he is promising to himself. You want to talk about an ironclad promise? Man, there's, you know, there's a promise that's ever going to be made in the universe. The promise of all promises. One that's not going to be broke. It's going to be one made by God to God. And then, and then, we, then we see... Because part of, part of the promised land and all of that, it was it was all a setup, man. It was it was a type and a shadow. It was a, God was dealing with those people in this time, in that time, and kept His promises to them. But it was not just about them and that time. It was a type and a shadow pointing forward to something to come. And the very fact that He gave them a land and He made them a people, it was a really He loved them and He cared about them and He had promises for them and He interacted with them. But the whole reason Abram got called out of Ur of the Chaldeans was to make a people for God that out of that people could come a seed. It was really all about Jesus the whole time. The whole narrative was about getting to God being able to bring a Messiah and a Savior into the world. He had to choose a people and set them apart. And almost the promised land was... I mean, really, the wilderness, Egypt, to some degree, all of that was an incubator for God's redemptive plan. And then and then the thing was born when Jesus was born. And so the promise to, to his seed is not fully fulfilled in what we read in Joshua. We're, okay, we're in the promised land now, we kicked everyone else out, and we're good for a while. That's not the total fulfillment of the promise. That fulfills the The land side, the kind of physical side that was made to Abram, but what about the promise to his seed, to Christ? This is the fulfillment of that promise. John got a glimpse of the final fulfillment of this promise to Abram in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, "Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of water, of life, without cost. That is the final fulfillment of the promise to Abram. That through him and his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You can go in into Revelation and you can look at the, the dimensions. And I don't know how allegorical it is or not. But the bottom line you come out from is this new Jerusalem. This, this new earth where God dwells in the midst of His people, it's giant. It's huge. There's going to be a lot of people there. And that's great. I'm, I'm so glad a bunch of you are going to be there. Really, really, th- genuinely thankful. But that comes in a distant second to the fact that He's going to be there. I, I, don't, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. <laughs> but I... I am a recipient. I'm one of the families of the earth that's going to be blessed through this covenant being fulfilled and God keeping every promise he ever made. And I'm so thankful. And not only am I a recipient of it, but I've I've been drafted into this great and incredible work, the work of all works, the mission of all missions to let as many people as possible know this God is real and he keeps his promises and he loves them. And if they will believe him, that's what John, when John wrote the book of John, you know what he said? Here's what I'm doing. I'm writing this entire thing so that you may believe. So friends, may we believe. May we not just believe, but may we act on that belief. May we open the door for others to believe. Because it is, it is in that, it is in that alone that we will find the destiny that each of us was created for. In connection to the God that made us through grace, through grace by trusting in Christ and receiving the grace that he alone provides. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you for Genesis 15. Thank you. You could have, your word could have been much shorter. You could have said something to the effect of, just trust me. But you gave us the story. You gave us our story. You gave us these incredible details so that we can can trace the might of your hand as you worked in all of history and you, you wove things to your purposes down to the most finite details. We get to see the cosmic level of your power. And yet, at the very same time, your incredible patience and benevolence towards us. Thank you we get to see all of that in your word. Thank you that as a result of this, as a result of the fact that when we believe you, when we trust you, you will count it to us as righteousness, we can be the children of Abraham. We can be sons and daughters of the Most High God. Thank you, Lord, that the hurdle is not perfection on our part. It's not doing enough good things that you'll love us. It's trusting that you do. Thank you. When we really understand how you've responded to our iniquity, it becomes very clear how much you genuinely do want us. Lord, help us rejoice in that and live out of the incredible comfort that it brings. Thank you that you're on our side, Lord. You're not against us. You're for us. Help us believe that and live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot my love city